If you would, open your Bibles to Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel. Let's see. And what's that? Yeah, we're still getting some feedback. I, you probably know that. Emily, who did uh, sound on Christmas Eve um, for her first time to do it, but apparently, well, been training for a while. Uh, but she said that when they had feedback on the mic, she had an army of people come stand behind her and let her know that they were having feedback and what to do. <laughs> All well-meaning, no doubt, uh, you know. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, um, but Mark chapter 16, if you would. Mark chapter 16. Um, and the title of my message is The Resurrection, New Creation, and You. The Resurrection, New Creation, and You. Um, and if you would... Uh, Join me in reading the first eight verses of Mark's gospel, uh, chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought uh, spices so that they might uh, go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white, uh, in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin this year, let us remember what we need to live this year more than anything. Let us recall that it is our faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that makes all the difference in the world. Let us come to understand it more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I I will easily admit that it will seem unusual for some that I would preach the resurrection on New Year's Day. Sadly, the resurrection has often been limited to Easter in terms of preaching. It's maybe mentioned a few other times a year, but rarely preached. We commonly hear people saying on on Easter uh, Sunday, Happy Resurrection Day. I've said it, say it many times. You may have said it as well, you've probably heard it. Happy Resurrection Day, because it is indeed that, and that's the point of what we're celebrating, and that's wonderful. But you could say that every Sunday, as I pointed out in a blog post I did earlier this week. You could, you could say Happy Resurrection Day every Sunday, because that's why we gather on Sunday. You, you can start in John's Gospel, and, and on the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week, Jesus is raised, and then the next week... Uh, They all gather together, and it's the first day of the week, and the Lord shows up in his presence, and poor Thomas missed out. 
So then they have to wait another week, and the next week, on the first day of the week, they gather together, and the Lord shows up and is present among them. And the church has been gathering on that day every week since then. And that's why we gather together today to worship the Lord, because we are declaring that we believe in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. John, the same apostle who I just referred to in his gospel, wrote the Revelation, the book we call Revelation, and we read there that he got this entire vision that we call the book of Revelation of what ultimately culminates in the new creation on what? The Lord's Day. How appropriate, right? Because it is the resurrection that is the very start, the the first fruit of the new creation. Everything else grows out of that. So it would be only appropriate that on the Lord's day, he receives the visions that ultimately culminate in the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It is faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that is the foundation of everything we do. As Paul noted, if Christ has not been raised, then we are of all people most to be pitied. In a day when faith is in decline and new life is the only hope that one can have, it seems that this message of the resurrection, this gathering to meet with the resurrected Jesus as the disciples did at the beginning, is the very message that we need. Now, if you have no trouble with me picking to talk about the resurrection on New Year's Day, first Sunday of the year, you might question my sanity in picking Mark's gospel as the text from which I'm going to preach the resurrection. And that you might be, at least have a fair assessment in. I mean, if you're going to preach the resurrection, fine, but why go to Mark? Last week, someone pointed out to me on Christmas morning, I believe it was, um, that, yeah, you probably aren't going to ever preach the birth of Jesus or do a Christmas message out of Mark's gospel. For the obvious reason that it's not there. I mean, it's just like he starts after Jesus grew up. You know, that's where he begins. Okay? But... Truth be told, I would bet you anything, I would put any amount of money I could possibly spare on the fact that statistically the least used resurrection story in any of the four Gospels on Easter, the least used would be none other than Mark. Why? Well, it's it's not as bad as the, like, it's not absolutely missing, but it's rather scant. I mean, we've read it. And and, and there you have it. Um... Most Bibles indicate that Mark's gospel actually ends with verse number 8, which is in fact true. I mean, the verses 9 through the end that we commonly have as the ending, especially in older Bibles uh, of Mark, were uh, texts that were added well after the writing of Mark because somebody thought it was incomplete. It just felt incomplete. And, and so they added on some things to give it a more complete ending. And, and, and they're probably nice enough things, even true enough things, are just not Scripture as it goes. Um, now, some refer to the ending of Mark at verse 8 as the non-ending of Mark, uh, which is why it's rarely used on Easter. I mean, what, what do you have? You have an empty tomb. You know what's missing in that ending? The resurrected Jesus. I mean, it says that he was resurrected. I mean, he's been raised, right? Now go find him. 
in Galilee. That, that's where it ends. I mean, you imagine an Easter play without a resurrected Jesus? I mean, like if you went to, you know, pay, paid, paid good money for that, you'd want a refund at the end, right? It's like, what's up with that? Mark, you know, I want a refund. <laughs> None of the Gospels actually tell the story of Jesus coming out of the tomb, to be fair. They all start with the empty tomb and move to the appearance, appearances of Christ, except Mark. He starts with an empty tomb and ends. Two suggestions are that Mark either didn't finish his gospel, you know, something, something came up, persecution, whatever, and he, and he fled, <clears throat> or um, that the ending was lost. Now, apparently that's what somebody thought when they wrote some other ending for it. Uh, but scholars can easily demonstrate that Mark's ending is precisely in keeping with Mark's structure as the whole gospel is concerned and style of writing. And just a couple of simple examples it begins with a messenger, the Gospel of Mark, announcing, this is John the Baptist, what is about to happen in the coming of the Messiah. And it ends with a messenger announcing what has happened and where he is leading. Both of those messengers, their clothing is described. One is in camel's hair and a leather belt, and the other is in a white robe. Mark begins with Jesus going into Galilee to begin his ministry, so where is the first place he wants to take his disciples who would follow him after his resurrection? I'll, I'll see you in Galilee. So it ends exactly as Mark intended it to end. And then when you think about Mark's uh, uh, particular parables and the way he elaborates these parables, it, they're all about these seeds being hidden in the ground. And one day, <laughs> one day while you're sleeping and rising, you never know what, yep, suddenly something appears and it, it, it becomes big. And that's how his gospel ends. It's just like you just kind of end with something in the ground, well, except now it's empty and whoop. One day, right? One day, something's going to happen. So, Mark's gospel ends just as he intended, just as the Spirit inspired him to write it, indeed. Instead of questioning Mark's completeness, we need to ask why Mark writes such a brief ending. Why does Mark seem to stop short? He clearly isn't stopping short, but he certainly seems to stop short to our expectations. Well, I will say this, that, that Mark's gospel, the ending of Mark's gospel is subtle, but it is not missing. It is subtle, but it is not missing. Mark's ending, indeed, is powerfully subtle, I would argue. Not clumsy, not missing. See, Mark knew that someone could see all the evidence, the miracles, the lepers cleansed, the calming of the storm, the driving out demons with the word, the raising of the dead, feeding multitudes with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish, and that person could still not have faith sufficient for following Jesus. They may believe that all those things happened, don't get me wrong, so they would believe that, but they would not have sufficient faith for following Jesus. In fact, no matter what we see, or what the women saw, or what the disciples saw, the only way we'll have faith is if we see what the human eye cannot see. Faith it's different than, well, we have to take it by faith, meaning, you know, we have to believe it just because we're told it's true without any thinking about it. It's not that, on the one hand. But it is also different than, I believe it because I have been convinced by the facts. There are not enough facts in the world to make you a true believer in Jesus Christ. 
They may, not persuade, they may persuade you not to discount it, but they will not be sufficient for, of faith for following Jesus. You see, there's no way we can arrive at faith by scientific proofs. If, if we had been provided a film of Jesus being raised from the dead and a video of all the post-resurrection appearances, we, we could all watch it on 60 Minutes or see it played every Easter morning and it would still not provide faith. Faith is something neither Mark nor I can provide. And you can't muster it up yourself. The twelve saw Jesus feed the multitudes with a handful of loaves and a few fish and didn't understand, we are told. They saw him walking on the water and thought he was a ghost. Peter, upon seeing Jesus transfigured in radiant white, standing with Moses and Elijah, says, hey, let's build three tents. He didn't get it. Seeing all those things didn't give them true faith. And we might argue with Mark, why, why didn't you tell them about the appearances of Jesus? Why didn't you explain what Paul did to the Corinthians, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve? After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared also to me as to one abnormally born. Why why didn't you explain all that, Mark? (laughs) What does Mark tell us? Well, he tells us, first, about three women. Mary Magdalene, Mary the uh, mother of James, and Salome. About them going to the tomb to put spices on Jesus' body. We are told, secondly, that they are discussing how they will get the stone rolled from the tomb. And then they suddenly see that it has already been rolled away from the tomb. We are told that they see a messenger, no doubt an angel, who does two things. First, he tells them not to be alarmed about the missing body, because Jesus has been raised and is no longer there. And then he instructs them, go tell his disciples and Peter, Peter who had denied him, the one who might have doubts about whether he would be included, go tell the disciples, his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, there you will see him just as he told you. And then finally he tells us that the women, at least initially, as far as we know, were too afraid to obey. And then he ends. Mark isn't concerned to tell us much. Why? Because faith is a gift from God. And it is a gift we need as we step into 2023. It is a gift we need if we're going to be the church in a secular age. It is a gift we need if we're going to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven so that His kingdom manifests itself wherever we are, so that the world may know that the Father sent the Son. It is the gift we need if we are going to take up our cross and follow Christ. It was the gift that Mark's church needed because they were a persecuted people. They needed that faith and they needed to understand what was essential for that faith. And so he clears away all the debris. Wonderful truths, wonderful things. He clears it all away and leaves us with the essential. Mark understood that 
seeing and believing don't necessarily go together. So, so what is the essential? One, the empty tomb. None of us would be saying that Jesus was raised from the dead if there was a dead Jesus laying in that tomb. Right? We wouldn't say that. Mark verifies with witnesses that we have an empty tomb. Secondly, he gives us the heavenly explanation. There's lots of explanations we know from the other Gospels and the book of Acts that people had for why the tomb was empty. Then no one denied that it was empty. It's just that there were plenty of explanations for how it might have gotten that way. But here's the heavenly explanation, see? He gives us, with a heavenly voice, this angelic messenger, this explanation, he is not here, he is risen. So that's what heaven says about the empty tomb. And then he tells us how to have a personal encounter with the living Savior. Mark sends the women and everyone who reads to meet with Jesus alive and encounter him. You want faith? Have an encounter with Jesus Christ. My grandfather, and you know, I'm just telling you what he told me. Um, he died in 2003, two months short of 100. And when he was about 70, give or take a year or so, <coughs> he had been his entire life an agnostic. He didn't deny the existence of God. He just figured you couldn't know who he was. Um, but he, in in in. in uh, when he was about 70, he was, had visited our family. They had come to visit. I was, I don't know, about eight years old, as I, you know, somewhere in that range. But uh, on their way home, they were driving. The interstate system wasn't what it was, so they were driving back, and, and uh, a, a semi ran them off the road down a ravine, getting ready to go into a river until they hit a tree. Well, anyway, long story short, um, the, the ambulance came, the workers came, and and while they've got him on the table, he died. Was gone for you know, however long, wasn't terribly long. But when he came back, he, he died an agnostic. He came back a Christian. And really, quite simply, the way he'd tell the story, and every time he'd tell it, his, he would just start crying. Every time he talked to him, he was wanting to pray. I mean, he was one of the most passionate Christians I've met from that day forward. But, but he'd just tell you what, I, you know, what did you see? He said, well, I, 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 I just saw eyes of love. I just saw, he never talked about a physical description. People would ask him, he said, I don't know. I, it's not like I saw a physical thing. It, it's just that I saw love. And he knew that was Jesus Christ. He somehow intuitively knew that's Jesus Christ. He had an encounter with Christ. And whatever state between death and life that was, I don't know. But he had an encounter with Christ, and he knew that love. And while I've never had an encounter as deep maybe as that one was, I've had that encounter as I've worshipped. I've had that encounter in times of prayer. I've had that encounter as I've read through the Scriptures. And in that moment, Christ has an encounter with me, and I sense his love, and I know his nature. It's that experience with Christ that grants us faith. You can bring your doubts to Christ, and he will give you faith. Christ Jesus is the one who opens our eyes. Seeing him raised on film or in person would have no greater effect. In fact, it could, I suppose, hinder real faith. Mark understands the mystery of faith. That faith is seeing a reality that cannot be seen on a human level. It must be revealed by God. 
Mark isn't trying to prove the resurrection. I mean, do you notice how he just doesn't even go there? He doesn't prove the resurrection, doesn't even attempt to. Even the women don't see it yet when the, the gospel ends. The empty tomb is not evidence for the resurrection. It only raises the question. It says, how, how did the tomb get empty? Now, there's a lot of possible answers, right? It raises the question. Mark stops at the empty tomb, raising the question and giving us the heavenly explanation. He has risen. And then that heavenly messenger sends us to Jesus. If you want to understand the empty tomb, you've got to heed the heavenly voice and go to Jesus. A nine-year-old boy was asked by his mother what he had learned in his NCK class across the way one Sunday. And, well, Mom, our teacher told us how God sent Moses behind enemy lines on a rescue mission to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And when he got to the Red Sea, he had his engineers build a pontoon bridge and all the people walked across safely. He used his walkie-talkie to call in an airstrike. They sent in bombers to blow up the bridge, and all the Israelites were saved. Now, Joey, is that really what your teacher taught you? His mother asked. No, Mom, but if I told you what the way the teacher did, you'd never believe it. <clears throat> and no, that didn't actually happen in NCK. But <clears throat> Mark makes no attempt to either make the story more convincing, like little Joey did, <clears throat> nor to convince us with human reasoning. Mark sends us to Jesus to be convinced. That is the essential thing. I, I don't know about you, but I'm guilty of wanting to make faith in Jesus more believable sometimes. I, I just... I just want to use some good arguments to help people make that step. As if it weren't a miracle. Because deep down, if I'm trying to persuade them that way, I somehow don't think it's a miracle. And the reality is it's a miracle. It's a miracle that you're here worshiping Christ on January 1st because of the resurrection. There's no way you would be doing this barring a miracle. The miracle that allows you to believe in Christ, ever how weak that faith is or strong that faith is, given the particular day or week you're in. Mark doesn't try to make it more persuasive. <clears throat> Christianity, hear me clearly, Christianity is not about a tomb. It's about the person who revealed himself through death on a cross and lives again. It's about a person. It's about a person. If we go to that person, he will give us the faith we need. Jesus refuses to be revealed by anyone other than himself. Ask your questions, do your investigation, and what will you find? You'll find an empty tomb, yes. You'll find witnesses, yes. You'll find miracles, yes. Faith doesn't come from these. But when Christ makes himself known to you, that's where faith comes. Now, that's my sermon. I've got a few points to make, so those are my second two points. There's a couple of points, so, you know. <clears throat> They're the conclusion, the next two points. They're just the extended conclusion. So, point two... What does this mean for our mission to the community? 
What does this mean to, to your mission, to those in your relationship, the people in your circle of influence, the people in your neighborhood, your family, the people right here in this community? What does it mean for them, for you? What does it mean as far as our mission here at Gulf Coast and in your life? Well, first, I, I hope that it is freeing for you. It is freeing for you. Yeah, yes, I get it. At one level, we have to acknowledge it will take a miracle for us to reach this community because apart from a miracle, nobody will have faith in Jesus. So yes, it will take a miracle. But here's the good news. You can't produce that miracle. And it's not your job to produce that miracle. My life's not my job either. I'll tell you, that's freeing. There are plenty of preachers who somehow think it's their job to convince people to worship Jesus and believe in him. I think in the end it turns more people off, but regardless, it's not your job. It's not my job. Have you ever been trained in evangelism and been left feeling burdened when you're when you done? That you just can't remember what you need to or convince them to believe? Well, you don't have to. Share your own encounter with the living Christ. Share the basics that Jesus came. He came to rule as king. He died, was buried. And was raised on the third day. And he now rules over everything in heaven and earth. You share your story. You share those things about Christ. And then you invite them to go to Christ prayerfully in the gospel. And ask him to reveal himself to them. Go there. Encounter Jesus in Galilee. In Judea. Judea. In the gospels. And Christ will do the work. Christ will open eyes. And if Jesus doesn't give them faith, I've got news for you, you can't either. He can. So go with that confidence. Second thing that it should do, and this is really similar to the first, but I'm going to say it differently just so that you get both sides of the same thing. You're not ultimately responsible for results. You're not ultimately responsible for results. Now, if you take a job in sales, and I, I had for 10 years professional sales, did it business to business, uh, things I loved about it, things I hated about it, made a lot of money, that much I liked, you know. But, but <clears throat> it, you, you can take a job in sales, and in sales, I've got news for you. You are responsible for the results. This isn't sales. This isn't sales. I have people tell me all the time, well, you're still in sales, aren't you? No. I'm not. I, I, I can see clearly the distinction between what I was doing there and what I am doing here. I'm not ultimately in sales, and neither are you. Results are only possible through the miraculous working of Jesus, which gives them uh, uh, the ability to believe what they cannot prove simply because he speaks to them. Not audibly. But he speaks to them. The other thing that I think it does for our mission, it informs us of something. It informs you of something. It informs you that you are qualified despite your fear and your past disobedience. You are qualified in the mission of Jesus to bring the gospel to the ends of the world, which might be across the street might be your friend down the street. It might be the person that you meet at a restaurant today. It might be a lot of people that you could encounter. But it, it, it tells you that you are qualified despite your fear and past disobedience. 
The, the only recipients of the message in Mark's resurrection scene are terrified and disobedient. Did you notice that? Go tell! And they went and said nothing because they were afraid, you know. They were terrified and they were disobedient. And yet, and yet, we're all sitting here today worshiping Jesus. Now, something happened between terrified and disobedient and us sitting here. And of course, we know that they eventually repented of their disobedience and eventually told, and the disciples did meet them there. And here we are today. That miracle keeps replicating itself across the globe. The church is growing at rates today, not in North America to be sure, but it's growing at rates today faster than it ever has. I suppose other than the first few weeks when, of course, all growth is astronomical because it didn't exist. So taking that out of the factoring. If these three terrified, disobedient women were a necessary link for the gospel to reach the ends of the earth and they succeeded then we who are also necessary links to your neighbors, your co-workers, your friends, and even this neighborhood here around us can succeed despite our previous disobedience and despite our fear. Fearful women, disloyal disciples like Peter, and every other kind of disciple when they encounter the living Christ by faith are empowered to share the news. Then second thing I want to talk about... Third point, or second point of my long conclusion. What does this mean for our own faith? What does this mean for our own faith? In a way, it's really simple. It it means that in the battle for faith, the only path to success is to continue to go meet Jesus where he tells us to meet him. In the battle for faith, the only sure path to success is to continue to go meet Jesus where he tells us to meet him. I have a confession to make. I battle doubt. Maybe you don't. God bless you. I suspect you do. But here's what I've discovered. The only cure for my doubts is an encounter with God in Christ. Works every time. You go to God in Christ and you encounter Him. Your faith is invigorated. The problem is, I mean, I say I know people. You know, maybe you do too. The problem is we don't do it enough. We tend to think we've got it under control. I'm not saying we don't read the Bible. We don't do this. We don't say our prayer. But we're not going to encounter Christ. We go to church on Sunday, which is a gathering of people who come to encounter the resurrected Jesus as it began in John's Gospel. But we've forgotten about that, and we just kind of come because it's Sunday, and somebody told us that that's when we worship, and we come, and, and, and we go through the motions. And When we arrive on Sundays, we are arriving to encounter the living Christ with each other. Thanks be to God. We 
when Christ touches me in prayer or in His Word or in fellowship, whatever doubts I may have been nursing are stilled and sent fleeing. One of those places the disciples consistently met the resurrected Jesus was when they gathered each first day of the week. So, what does this mean for our faith? It means, first, that the only path to success in the battle of faith is to continue to go meet Jesus where He tells us to meet Him. Secondly, it means that you can't reason your way to faith. You must encounter Christ. Now, I know that's just a repetition of the first point, but if I just keep saying it some other way, we'll we'll get it. We can't wait until all our doubts are resolved before we act in faith. We can't reason our way there. Rather, just as the disciples only encountered Christ when they obeyed the heavenly voice and went to uh, meet Christ in Galilee, so we will only encounter Christ as we act in faith to go meet Christ in His Word, at His table, in prayer, or in your brother or sister in Christ when they speak a word from Christ to you. You see, they, they, they didn't meet Jesus in Galilee the moment they heard the instruction. They had to actually get up and make their way, take a journey and arrive in Galilee. And often we'll be on a journey for a season until we find that encounter, the one that we need to still the doubts that we're wrestling with. That's okay. Stick to the journey. Thirdly, it means we must live in the resurrection. We must live in the resurrection. Let me explain that one. That one that one takes some explaining. Wendell Berry, he's a writer, poetry, novels, essays. Essays are pretty brilliant. Um, <clears throat> but he's he's well-known writer and uh, well he's still alive but he's I think in his 90s or late 80s. But um, he was raised in rural Kentucky. After high school he left and got an education, University of Kentucky and then taught at Stanford and NYU. He, he wrote a lot about rural life, but he did so as a subject he knew about. After a few years doing that, he moved back to Kentucky, teaching there, but finally leaving that, you know, the University of Kentucky again, uh, he went to live on a farm and write about it, which is where he spent the majority of his adult life. Just living on a farm and writing about life as he experienced it there. And he describes the difference between what he did when he was in New York and at Stanford and what he did when he went back and lived on the farm and wrote. He describes the difference as the difference between having, having a subject and living in a subject. Having a subject versus living in a subject. Far too often, believers talk about and study the resurrection of Jesus as a subject they have and even believe in. But we are called to live in that subject, to live in the resurrection. When the women finally did tell the disciples and Peter, they had to make their journey to Galilee before they encountered Jesus alive, as I noted. They acted in faith to encounter the living Christ. They had to live in the resurrection before they encountered the one resurrected. Living in the resurrection is what Paul means in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. When he writes, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. 
we too, just as Christ was raised from the dead, resurrection, we too may live a new life. We need to live in the resurrection. We need to live in that new life for which he has made us. We are a new people created as a part of the new creation. And we are called to live in that new life. Or as Paul said elsewhere, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. That's the NIV. I like that. It's literally this, which it's, you have to supply something to get sense out of it. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. Most translations simply, he is a new creation. Fair enough. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. The new creation has come. In other words, the moment we're in Christ, and to be in Christ means to be buried with him uh, in his death and raised with him to that new life. And that's the new creation. We are called to live that new creation. The question for us, as Wendell Berry puts it, is whether we study the new creation as a subject we have or as a subject we live in. Are you living in the resurrection? In 2023, let's increasingly, as a church, as a people, as a community of believers, let's increasingly live in the new creation by increasingly living into our faith in the resurrection, the new creation. One of the ways the church has done this historically is by gathering on Resurrection Day, the first day of the week. Our gathered worship is a declaration that we belong to another time. The Messianic Age, the new creation... Our time is dictated by another time. I mean, listen, look around. The times, they're going poorly. But we start our week by saying, no, we, we actually belong to another time, and they're going swimmingly well because the new creation is coming down out of heaven from God as we live in His will and walk in His ways. See, another way that we live in the resurrection is by living out the teaching of Jesus. This is the new life which Paul speaks about in Romans 6, that we may live a new life. That new life is what Jesus was teaching us, how he was teaching us to live in the Messianic age. You might refer to the Sermon on the Mount, as I frequently do. And and, and that's a good place to, to, to place ourselves to study what does resurrection life look like. The resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. He is the first fruits of the new creation. He is the beginning of setting things right. And our lives will continually advance His ways so that all things are eventually set right. We live in that new creation by faith in His reign over everything in heaven and on earth, doing His will on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, as we consider what it means to live in the resurrection, help us to see clearly, encounter us as we come to you in prayer, enliven us to see what that looks like, what it looks like to live by faith in the resurrection. Indeed, Lord, through us may that new Jerusalem come down out of heaven from God in our lives as a manifestation so that others may look and see something of the gospel in us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. Amen. This morning we have the privilege of coming to the Lord's table. I said earlier that Jesus reserves the right to reveal himself to himself. That he makes himself known by himself. And one of the sacraments that he's left for us to practice is the Lord's table. Because in the Lord's table we are reminded of how he reveals himself. His broken body, his shed blood. That's how he makes himself known most clearly. The end of all the Old Testament, the end of all that's said about Jesus, it all culminates right there at the cross where God most clearly shows what his reign is like. He's the God who dies for us. What kind of God is this? Never been heard of before. And so as we come to this table, I encourage each of us, because we each need to have faith. We each need our faith renewed regularly and often. As we come to this table to contemplate what Christ has done for us, to contemplate the kind of king he is that rather than as kings of their day did feast on the flesh and blood of their subjects, in bloody wars, but tells us that in his kingdom he's the one whose flesh and blood is ate and drank, not the other way around. What kind of king, what kind of God is this? Nothing like the world offers. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and it's probably a lot bigger than this cracker, and he broke it. And said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup after supper and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. New covenant, a new relationship with God. Sins, it's poured out for the forgiveness of the sins of many. We're going to go ahead and, and um, the, you'll come up to, to get the elements. You'll come up the, these two center aisles, get the elements, return to your seat, and then we'll all partake together. But in the meantime, just take some time to go to Christ. Contemplate who He is. What kind of King He is. What kind of God He is that He would die for us. And allow that to be transformative in us. As we sing, go ahead and make your way up. Receive the elements. <clears throat>